0: hello this is tom williams and you are listening to talk theater in chicago's interview podcast i have a very special guest this week she is naomi wallace who is the featured playwright at eclipse theaters present season and hello naomi how are you doing today
1: i'm doing great thank you for asking me to be on the show
0: well uh I think you have an important voice and I think your, your writing is, is unique and the productions that Eclipse have done of your work has been terrific. The, the present show, the, the trestle at Pope Lick Creek is fantastic. It's been, uh, well received by the, by the reviewers in Chicago. So tell us what got you to, uh, what was your inspiration for writing that play?
1: Well, um, wrote the play thinking about a variety of ideas. Um I know that sometimes it doesn't seem very inspirational to say one is inspired by ideas, but what I was doing at the time is I wanted to look at how our culture um uh, denigrates in some ways and abuses young people. And I chose to set it in the 1930s during a difficult time um economically, which I'm very glad Eclipse is reviving this because the play feels to me like it has even more resonance than it did when it was first produced.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: So, you know, I wanted to look at, you know, how through laws, uh, not only through laws do we criminalize young people, and young people have far harsher laws for the same crimes than adults, but how, you know, when pe- yeah, people are young, they're so full of a kind of natural-spirited anti-authoritarianism, and that it is part of their nature to challenge Um, our power, and I think it makes us afraid often, and we want to control them. And I like to think that we need to listen to young people and learn from their critical intelligence rather than looking at them as potential criminals, basically. Um, So I wrote this play thinking about young people and how young people are portrayed in the media and in our culture. And then the other reason I wrote the play was I was thinking a lot about the American family. On the American stage, um, one of the kings of that, of course, is Sam Shepard. And what I found was that often the idea was that 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 a family is corrupted, um, innately corrupted, and it destroys its own family members. And I wanted to kind of turn that inside out and look at a family that was basically loving and healthy and see how the economic and social system pressured this family so that it began to fall apart. So it was kind of looking at the idea of the American family play or the dysfunctional family play and taking it from a different angle. Because I think when we look at our families, our families in America, and I'm generalizing terrible here terribly here, we could look at it as our families are each very different and that they're insulated from the social and economic system um that surrounds us, the communities that surround us. And I wanted to look at the idea that actually what happens in our families, and especially when families begin to fall apart, has a lot to do with what is outside the family.
0: Yeah, it it like the Drake character. He believes he is less a person because he's unemployed. Right. You know, and and that concept of uh, we are what we do uh, overwhelms him.
1: Yes, yes. And I know on on the one hand that may seem um, counter to what we like to think, that we are innately valuable just as human beings, and, you know, that's fine. I, I agree with that, but I wanted to look at work and what is our relationship to work And what is our relationship to work within American culture? And the idea that, you know, we often think when people don't have work or don't have jobs, are, are, we're, we're told that they don't want to work or they're lazy or they just want to be on welfare. Whereas I think that, I think that almost every human being wants to be productive, wants to give back, wants to be of use to their families and larger communities. So looking at Dre is he felt he was useful. He felt he worked with others, he wasn't isolated, and to see what happens when he no longer can get work, not because he's lazy, not because he doesn't work, but because the economic system at the time cannot absorb the workers and is throwing people out of work, as we see today.
0: Yes, and let's talk about the the two young characters, Dalton and Pace. Uh, They seem to be stuck in this, this culture that gives them the belief that there's no hope for their future.
1: Well, um, you know, I would say that, I mean, if we talk about today, again, I'm generalizing, um, and and we think of kids in the 1930s, um, there may be today more opportunities for young people to speak out. Um, But I think that our mainstream culture works very hard to seduce young people into being obedient consumers rewarding them for a kind of caring more about what they can buy than how they can change their communities. And while <clears throat> I consider the play a dark comedy, I mean, I think it's full of humor. It's pro- It's nowhere near as serious on the stage as I may make it sound. But um, these two young people do feel that um, that they have very little future. And the question is, what happens to young people? When they feel that there is no future for them, where do they put their creativity? Um, where do they put their agency and their energy? And so they try to find other ways to feel like they're here and that they matter.
0: Yeah, and uh, what I thought you also captured so well in in this work was the uh, the the pent up sexual confusion and the repression of emotions uh, that that the teens felt. Uh, particularly in that, uh, in the, that era.
1: Yes. Well, you know, I've always been interested in the 1930s because it was a time of, um, a tremendous pressure of, uh, you know, those who had nothing and the few that had some, but a tremendous uncertainty at the same time, as you say, not only about people's future, but just about things that were changing and when people thought things would would go on forever and, you know, that they would have their jobs and they wake up one day and ev- the world's changed for the majority of Americans. And I wanted to see what, what people would do because sometimes when we have nothing, um, uh, ideas that may not have come into our mind before of how we can survive, um, come to the fore. And while the play on, it's, in some sense is about what do young people do when it seems hopeless, it is also very much about how resilient people can be and how through creativity and the love for each other, they find survival tactics. And they begin to think, does the world always have to be the way it was because it led to this catastrophe? Maybe we can put the world back together in a different way, in a way that is better for us.
0: Yeah. And what I also liked was your, the Pace character. She, she's a strong young lady.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad she comes over that way. And, um, and I think that that is what she is. She's very creative. She's intelligent. I mean, I think sometimes this play has been looked at is that she has some, some craving for death because she runs the trains. And, you know, I never, I never felt I wrote it that way. I can hear that people may read aspects of it, um, that way, but she says very distinctly, You know, we do not want to die. And what she does with the train is she challenges herself. She doesn't have anything else to challenge herself with. She also builds a friendship with someone else so that together they can challenge this this kind of, again, catastrophe heading their way, which is the train. And uh, they feel empowered by that it's it's not so it's very simple to read it as they simply have a death wish because they're hopeless. These kids aren't hopeless. I mean they one of them wants to go to college, even if he won't, and the other one just believes that if she can do something fantastic, that her life will matter.
0: yeah, yeah uh, the one of the themes that that I liked in the play was was you're dealing with this uh inability to be touched right. Yeah, it, it comes across certainly in the, in the, uh, with Dre and the wife, but also, uh, with Dalton and, and Pace. Uh, they, they play out their, their sexual, uh, repression without touching in, in a, in a, in a very strong scene.
1: Um, yes, yes, very, that's definitely what I was working with. I mean, I think, in some sense, I was looking at how young men and women and in such a powerfully heterosexual society, are taught who they can touch, how they can touch, where they can touch, and that what pace tries to do is to sort of uh, shake that up of what does it mean to be touched. And in some ways, it's not even about a physical touching. it's it's a different, you know whether it's an emotional touching but it also what I was trying to do was looking at sort of reimagining their desires their desires that have been controlled and channeled in a certain way by mainstream society what happens when they go outside that and that is where Pace wants to lead Dalton and of course his initial reaction or later reaction is one of anger that he feels he has suddenly become uncertain well that's the same thing of course that happened with the economy that that at the time everyone believed that it would continue and capitalism was the way to go and it would take care of everybody, and then suddenly everything became uncertain. But uncertainty can be very productive, and it and it is for them also in their sexual relationship.
0: Yeah, and in a marvelous scene that you that you develop, the the non-touching uh, sex scene it became quite sensual.
1: Ah. Well, you, yes.
0: You'll see that when you uh, when you come in town to, to see the play. It was just it was staged in a marvelous way.
1: Well, you know, I will be very excited to see that because I think it's a tough scene to stage, and um I've been in good contact with Eclipse Theatre. I've been lucky enough to speak with the actors and director of each show so far, with One Flea Spare, and then with with Tressel. But um, I've heard from a couple people I know that they say they're very happy with the production, so I'm very excited to see it. I'll be going up in about two or three weeks.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I I just think that this was a a well received play that that uh, it's as current as as anything out there. I mean, the the parallels between a depression era and what's going on today makes your play uh, uh, really come home to have some yeah. strong meaning.
1: Well, you know, Tom, I'm glad about that because sometimes we write things and we wonder, you can never know when something will feel dated. And I think that all plays at some point have less use than others. Um, but I think that Eclipse Theater chose very well in in, in in taking this play. And so I'm excited to see it. I have not seen a production of the play in some time, and just to see how it's working with with the world today and, and with with the situation in this country. Yes.
0: Well, uh, just a little commercial for the play, folks. Uh, it's at the Greenhouse Theater, and it runs Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Get to see it. It is a terrific play. But let's go back and talk about the first play that uh, Eclipse did in their uh, Naomi Wallace season, one Flea bear. I thought that was unique. Tell us how you got to write a play about the plague in England in 1665.
1: Well, I was, it was originally a commission for the Bush Theatre of London. And that's where it was produced for the first time. That, however, is not the reason I chose the subject. Um, I was, uh, reading, uh, Defoe's Journal of the Plague Years. And I just was looking, thinking about what I would write for them. And, uh, it came to me that I might be able to do something with that period. Actually didn't come to me. That's, that's a bit, bit of a lie is my partner said, why don't you write something about the plagues in England? And I said, I said, no way. That'd be completely boring. (laughs) And I started thinking about it and I thought, oh, I would love to do this because I hadn't, Really explored what happened in London at the time that they'd actually locked people into their houses if a member had died, and then from there, I thought, okay, so that means people from different classes, different places could suddenly find themselves locked together for six weeks against their will, and I thought that could be a drama
0: yeah well it certainly it certainly is uh, uh it, it's really kind of a class morality work, wouldn't you say?
1: Well, I wrote it, again, having the idea when I was looking for what to write about it. I I knew I didn't want to write in the present, which at that time must have been in the early 90s or earlier. Um, But I wanted to take a look at class relations in a different way. And, of course, that happens between the sailor and the man who is head of the household, but I wanted to set it in a time that was not our time so we could get a little bit of distance and re-examine what class relations, how they work, um, between people and how power is negotiated. And, and it helped to, it be, to be in the 17th century because it put a lot of, di- if, if I had written it for now, I think it, I don't. I think we would have been so I, uh, so close up, or I would have myself, that I couldn't see the the wood for the trees, so to speak. So having this distance here allowed me to simplify, in some ways, the class relations so they could be seen more clearly and critiqued.
0: You uh, you made the upper class uh, sexually starved.
1: <laughs> well, but sexually fulfilled in the end, at least one of them.
0: Yeah. Uh, from other things I've read from that era, that was probably quite accurate, uh, where the, where the young girl and the sailor are, are certainly less inhibited.
1: Yeah, and I mean, of course, in some ways that could, uh, that could be a cliche of the period, but I think that you're right that, that, um, the way the more privileged classes used the lower classes sexually was something that I was interested in well, that they could almost act out their sexual fantasies with someone who they believed had less power.
0: Yeah, yeah. that. And, of course, it's the, the play is also about isolation and survival. Yes. Yeah, and, and the staging. Did you get a chance to see the uh, Eclipse uh, production?
1: No, I very much wanted to, but at present I'm living in the north of England, so it's only when I'm, right now I'm in Kentucky, where I was born for the summer, so I'm able to go up to Chicago and see Trestle. but I was in England at the time, so I wasn't able to see it.
0: Wow! Well, well, but I'm
1: glad to hear that you thought it was a good show. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it it was it was well received. Uh, uh, the accents were strong, the costuming and the and the acting was Eclipse Theater. You'll see they they do a terrific job.
1: I have heard that from everyone, so yeah. I'm very excited.
0: Well, that, now let's get into uh, your next play. That right. you're doing here uh, at Eclipse coming up on September 15th. It opens the Fever Chart: Four Visions of the Middle East. Boy, talk about uh, good timing! Uh, <laughs> tell us about this, because I understand these are these are quite provocative these plays.
1: Well, you know what what's going to be very interesting is that uh, it was originally the Fever Chart. It's published as three image, three visions of the Middle East, but I had a small play. That, they, um, that they're that they also going to uh, do, which I think will be premiered then in the United States. Someone will have to correct me if they're wrong. So they've made it four visions of the Middle East. So that's going to be exciting. Um, you know, I wrote the pieces originally for a trilogy, um, The State of Innocence, The Retreating World, and, uh-oh, you're going to have to help me with this. Oh, Between This Breath and You. And I wrote them for different theaters at the time, but I always had in my mind that they would be short pieces um, about different conflicts, um, you know, Iraq, uh, uh, Palestine, and Israel, and then adding the one on is is Lebanon. So I think what I was trying to do, I mean, I have, you know, uh, family, European family, I have family from the Middle East, so it's, that's not the reason I wrote it, but uh, since since I was a child, I, you know, had contact with people uh, from all over that area, so it wasn't a tremendous leap for me imaginatively. But I wanted to look at, um, to sort of reimagine the the landscapes in the Middle East that specific, specifically, excuse me, between um, Israelis and Palestinians. Now, again, I will say that the fever chart I consider also a dark comedy. It may embrace very serious subjects, but I hope that it will be very funny. It should be, and that's the way I wrote it. But I wanted to look at the people within the politics. Now, the people aren't separated from their politics, but how, I wanted to look at how an unjust occupation affects both the occupier and the occupied. And in this case, um, Israel, Israelis and Palestinians and so i made a space on stage with within almost sort of hallucinatory landscapes um, to 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 connect no no connect would be a sentimental word to engage with one another
0: boy that's that that's going to be a powerful uh, topic uh uh i i was reading about you and they said you're the angry optimist <laughs> and that that uh you like to be political and that one of the themes you're after that you hate is injustice in the world.
1: Well, you know, it's funny, Tom, because I don't know of any writer who isn't political. I know of writers who will deny that they're political. And I guess I mean political with a small P, because for me, theater is always about power. It's about negotiations on power, on stage, on stage. Of power you know who has the power who doesn't who's trying to get it and why so in that way it it is about power and it's about politics it's about you know social class so all those things always so you know I, I basically would say I've never denied that I'm a political writer and sometimes maybe it's a bigger P and sometimes maybe it's a it's a smaller one um, now, I think I've just forgotten where you were leading me. Well, or I was leading
0: you. You're in, uh, you're in good company. Uh, Tony Kushner uh, has acknowledged you. Uh, and there's a, there's a man that writes a little political.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. And, you know, I can still remember uh, when I first met Tony Kushner, he came down to the University of Iowa to teach us. This is when I was still a student. And he said to our class of about 12, he said, so how many of you here consider yourselves political writers? And out of the 12, only two of us tentatively raised our hands. And he was said, well, I'm glad to see that. I think the rest of them thought, well, Tony will like us better if we don't. Uh, but we raised our hand um Uh, a friend of mine and I, I think it was Mike Geiser, to say we were. And so it was wonderful to have Tony Kushner there because he encouraged us. You know, he celebrated that we wanted to deal with politics and ideas. And so it was wonderful. And I've had a friendship with him ever since. But he was my teacher for about five days way back when.
0: Wow. That must have been been fun.
1: It was fun. I remember in one workshop we were there and – um, this is how someone can track how long ago it was. He got a Federal Express envelope, and he said to us, he opened it in our class and said, the National Theater of London's going to do my play. And I remember I said to someone, what's the National Theater? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning. He had already been done in the States, and that's when he was going to go to England, and then it spread around the world. He's a brilliant playwright, of course.
0: Oh, he's, he's the best. But... uh so you're a poet also, because it certainly comes across in your in the language that that you use, uh, and you have this this way of of being poetic, but still writing in the period like like the the play about 17th century England and the de- Depression era. So you didn't have your Depression era people sounding like poets, but when you thought of the words, the language was poetic. Now that's quite a balance.
1: Well, thank you. If I've achieved that at all, I'm very glad. You know, I think like I I think that when I wrote the play One Flea Spare, that some of that being able to find a language for that period came from reading writers of the period or around that period. Shakespeare, of course, and I combined that with with I I toned it down a little bit. I it found itself, if that makes sense. Um, the language found itself. And I think also, because for almost every play I've written, I've done extensive reading of the period, and whenever I can, oral histories or or listening to quotes from people speaking at the time, and somehow I absorb that, try to absorb that, and and fashion something that's not realistic of the time, but as though it's a language that remembers the time.
0: Yeah, I think more uh, writers would do that because I, you see, I see period pieces, uh, and then the writing, it just so sounds like 21st century. Right. The, right. The, there's no authenticity or honesty to it. Right. So, uh, are you the champion of the underdogs, like others say? And, and does social injustice, does that motivate you?
1: You know, Tom, I'm not the champion of everything, anything, you know, I, for me, my champions have been those who have written about or shared, uh, their stories of, you know, resistance to very oppressive circumstances. And I think one thing that I learned to do when I was younger was to listen. And, um, I grew up in Kentucky and, um, I grew up with privilege in a privileged family, um. But over the hill and not so far away, was both a black and white community of working class folks. And when I was young, those were the people that I ran with, so to speak, pretty wildly, so to speak, also. And so I listened. You know, I, I s- stayed with their kids and you know, listened to the dinner talk. and I picked a lot of that, a, a way of speaking up that was very different from, the privileged community that I came from. However, I have to say that my father came from privilege. My mother was, is, but came from Dutch working class. So growing up in my family, I had a side in history of privilege and then a side and history that I was more closer to that side that, that did not come from privilege. And so growing up, I, I that was always the talk. I mean, whether it was the talk about what... What we're getting at the grocery also had to do with Vietnam uh, and and that those things were not to be separated. My mother was always very passionate uh, and I grew up during the Vietnam War and she was often talking about the children of the Vietnamese and what was happening do- there during the bombing campaign. So I think I came to realize uh, that that the lives of others were mattered as much as ours. And I think the lives of others often do not. The lives of others that are often under the bombing campaigns abroad, often people who are darker skinned than I am. And so I, I you know, Tom, I read a lot of history. And what always inspires me is that no matter how oppressive a circumstance the resilience and creativity that people find, the reaching across lines to, to, for one to keep one's humanity intact. That, that to me is fascinating. Me too. How, how bad is the pressure? How bad are things? But, you know, but life still sparks. So it's less for me about, I have ne- never considered myself speaking for. You know, but I I will say that considering myself an American dramatist, I have no interest in just writing about privileged people because that's not America. That's not the United States.
0: No, that's an old coward in another era.
1: (laughs) Well, and, you know, the majority of Americans have not been and never have been the privileged ones. And they are the ones that carry the history, and that's where the drama is. So if I am writing about American history in some ways, those are the folks I'm going to write about.
0: Well, you do a marvelous job with that. Thank you. So now, let's tell us about Saturday, August 27th at 1230 at the Greenhouse Theater Center. You will be in a talk with uh, Tanya Palmer, who's the new play development uh, director at the Goodman Theater. And you're going to be doing a stage reading then of your new play. And I, and Silence. I hope I got that right.
1: Yes, it it comes from a a poem by Emily Dickinson, And I, and Silence. And um, yes, I'm very much looking forward to this. I think this will be the first time I've been invited into the Goodman. So that will be exciting. And to hear the play with um, American actors, the play was recently done in London in May. So it world premiered uh, because it was also commissioned by a British theater. So to have um, actors from that area do it. It's gonna be really exciting. And I'm looking forward to to um doing the talk, the interview in the Goodman.
0: Well, uh people are starting to realize uh, the power of your work and and the, the stagecraft. So it'll be great to have all of us meet you and uh for, for you to be able to share your ideas with people.
1: Well you know thank you Tom. I wanna to say that I was thrilled when I heard Eclipse was going to do the season and you know, I have while I have been awarded in American theater in terms of big mainstream or regional theaters, I've I've usually been outside the doors to a, lo- a large extent, but you know what? It's outside the doors where the exciting stuff happens. And were it not for theaters like Eclipse, I'm not sure where my work would be in Chicago, and I love working with smaller theaters. They for from in my experience they're able to take and wish to take more risks. And so, I, you know, I thank theaters like that who have valued my work and seen that it could possibly be of use. And I am very happy about that. Like I said, sometimes I'll complain now and then about being outside the doors, but mostly, you know, there's a lot of room to run out there.
0: Yeah, and uh, I couldn't agree with you more on the, on the smaller theaters and being able to take chances. In Chicago, is, we just... uh Help all these theaters as much as we can because we have quite a, quite a few of them that are, that are pressing the envelope and finding the, the, the terrific playwrights to, to produce.
1: Excellent. Yeah.
0: Last question. I, this is a standard question that I like (laughs) to ask, uh, successful people. What advice would you give to young playwrights?
1: What advice would I give to young playwrights? Um, well, for I would say don't let anyone tell you there's something you can't write about. And please don't think so much about when and where I can get produced. Write your plays, even if you're in isolation, because I think through the workshop system in the United States, there's such pressure to get a reading, to get a production, and young people, you know, young writers wanting to churn out plays. It's like if you have one play and you don't have eight and you're 25, Work on that one play, you know, and don't think while you're working where it's going to get done. You've got all the time in the world for that. Just work on the quality of it and engage with the history around you. Engage with the society around you. And even if it's a relationship between a father and son, let the ripples of what that relationship is and how it became, let that go far out, miles out, years out. So you can bring in the history and and social um, system within that within which that relationship takes place that
0: is tremendous advice last question short answer <laughs> Uh is there something is there a, a work or a topic that you haven't uh yet written about that you want to
1: um you know there is i am writing a play for a french theater now and that I've never written a play that takes place solely within the middle class and I thought, Naomi, you just got to do this so <laughs> I am writing a play for the uh, French theater um, that, that is, is a three-hander and it's, and it's about two, wo- two women and a, ma- uh, a young man and it's about their relationship.
0: Terrific we're looking forward to that <laughs> thanks so much, this has been terrific and folks, go see a play this week
1: Thank you very much